Welcome to Reimagining Atlantis. My name's Tori, and I'll be your host. I'm starting to think that my morning routine of waking up with a smile is the best way to wake up. That's what I do while laying in bed, pulling up this podcast information. I then proceed to jump out of bed and start thinking about the very next episode because I'm just so excited that you want to learn more. Thank you again for being there in these travels through time. This past week, I've listened to the audiobook on the Greek myths by Robert Graves. It's a retelling of the ancient stories and attempt to put them in chronological order. I think it's going to take the work of a quantum computer to solve the mystery. And after thousands of years, the answer will be 42. I hope by hearing these stories, these names start to mean something to you. I hope you're starting to feel a little bit more connected to Atlantis than ever before. I hope that you're falling in love with these stories, just like I have so many years ago. I have found so many pieces to this puzzle, and I feel like I could still use some help. I'm sure that someone somewhere has another piece to solve this. There is a book called Atlantis, the Antediluvian World. Most people reference this without knowing. In short, This book goes over linguistically how Atlantis was a mother civilization to 13 other civilizations that branched out into different parts of the world. I do plan on going over this on a later episode, but I'm only making reference to it now for one reason. From this book is where all the other theories come from, such as Edgar Cayce's Origin and Destiny of Man, James Churchwood on the Lost Continent of Mew, a.k.a. Lumeria, and Graham Hancock's Fingerprints of the Gods. For those who hold true to Atlantis being in America or the Bahamas, you're basing your work not from Plato, but from these other authors, who are questionable at best. If Atlantis was a continent in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, then we would know how many days' journey beyond the pillars that one had to go. Remember, Atlantis was the ultimate swap meet, so people went to them, not the other way around. Atlantis might be technologically advanced, but other parts needed to be advanced enough to travel to them on a consistent basis. For this episode, I'm going to start off with a little bit from the histories from Herodotus, And then I'm going to take you back in time to the story of Io and how she is connected to the Egyptians. To accomplish this, I'm going to use help from the following authors in order from oldest to youngest. Herodotus, known as the father of history, endeavored to create an encyclopedia on world history. He lived from around 484 BCE to 425 BCE. He died around the same time that Plato was born. Plato, a classical Greek intellectual and school headmaster, who was our primary source for Atlantis. He was born roughly around 425 BCE. The story on Atlantis was written around 360 BCE. I also want to take note that in my episode description, 
There's a link to a representation of Herodotus' map that's dating from 450 BCE. About 25 years before Plato was born, Herodotus wrote a collection of works called The Histories. While he doesn't spell Atlantis the same, it isn't a stretch to associate Atlantis with an E versus Atlantis with an I. Let's find out what Herodotus says about the people of Atlantis. Again, if you would like to take a look at this map, it is linked in my episode description. Here's Herodotus. Such are the tribes of the wandering Libyans, dwelling upon the seacoast. Above them, inland, is the wild beast tract, and beyond that, a ridge of sand reaching the Egyptian Thebes to the pillars of Heracles. Throughout this ridge, at a distance of about ten days' journey from one another, heaps of salt and large lumps lie upon hills. At the top of every hill, there gushes forth from the middle of the salt a stream of water, which is both cold and sweet. Around dwell men who are the last inhabitants of Libya on the side of the desert, living, as they do, more inland than the wild beast district. Of these nations, the first is that of the Ammonians, who dwell at a distance of ten days from Thebes, and have a temple derived from that of the Thebian Zeus. For at Thebes, likewise, I've mentioned above, the image of Zeus has a face like that of a ram. Next to the Ammonians, at a distance of ten days' journey, along the ridge of the sand, there is a second salt hill, like the Ammonian, and a second spring. The country round is inhabited, and the place bears the name of Agula. Hither, it is that the Nazamonians come to gather in the dates. Ten days' journey from Agula, there is again a salt hill and a spring. Palms, a fruitful kind, grow here abundantly, as they do also at the other salt hills. This region is inhabited by a nation called the Garamantians, a very powerful people who cover the salt with mold and then sow their crops. From thence is the shortest road to the Lodoophagi, the Lotus Eaters, a journey of 30 days. The Garamantians have four horse chariots in which they chase the Troglodyte Ethiopians, who, of all the nations whereof any account has reached our ears, are by far the swiftest of foot. The Troglodytes feed on serpents, lizards, and other similar reptiles. Their language is unlike that of any other people, and it sounds like the screeching of bats. At a distance of ten days' journey from the Gargamantians, there is again another salt hill and spring of water, around which dwell a people called the Atarantians, who alone of all known nations are destitute of names. The title Atarantians is borne by the whole race in common, but the men have no particular names of their own. The Atarantians, when the sun rises high in the heaven, curse him and load him with reproaches, because, they say, he burns and wastes both their country and themselves. Once more, at a distance of ten days, there is a salt hill and a spring and inhabited tract. Near the salt is a mountain called Atlas, very tapper and round, 
so lofty, moreover, that the top, it is said, cannot be seen, the clouds never quitting it either summer nor winter. The natives call this mountain the Pillar of Heaven, and they themselves take their name from it, being called Atlantes. They are reported not to eat any living thing and never have any dreams. As far as the Atlantes, the names of nations inhabiting the Sandy Ridge are known to me, but beyond them my knowledge fails. The ridge itself extends as far as the Pillars of Heracles, and even further than these. And throughout the whole distance at the end of every ten days there is a salt mine, with people dwelling round it, who all of them build their houses with blocks of salt. No rain falls in these parts of Libya. Beyond the ridge southwards, and the direction of the interior, the country is a desert, with no springs, no beasts, no rain, no wood, and altogether destitute of moisture. Thus, from Egypt, as far as Lake Triton is, Libya is inhabited by wandering tribes, whose drink is milk, and their food is the flesh of animals. Cow's flesh, however, none of these tribes ever taste, but abstain from it for the same reason as the Egyptians. Neither do they, any of them, breed swine. Even at Serene, the women think it's wrong to eat the flesh of cow, honoring in this Isis, the Egyptian goddess whom they worship both with fast and festivals. Plato, he says the following, The citizens have a deity for their foundress. She is called in the Egyptian tongue Neith, and is asserted by them to be the same whom the Hellenes call Athene. Herodotus, said the following in the previous section, Even at Serene, the women think it's wrong to eat the flesh of cow, honoring in this Isis, the Egyptian goddess, whom they worship both with fasts and with festivals. The Egyptian goddess Isis is the same as the Greek mortal lover of Zeus, Io. This is one of the reasons why the Egyptians believe that the Greeks were actually descendants of Egyptians, and that they share a common ancestor. So the first king of Argo was born from Okeanus and Tethys, and he was named Inachus. King Inachus is represented as a river running through parts of Greece known as Argo. The Inachus River flows south through western Argos, emptying into the Argolic Gulf between the town of Argos and Tyrenes and the Peloponnese, or southern Greece. According to mythology, when the gods Poseidon and Hera contested over dominion over Argos, Anakos was appointed judge and decided in Hera's favor. In retaliation, Poseidon dried up his stream. Poseidon's such a sore loser, isn't he? Anyway, back to Anakos. Anakos had a daughter named Io, spelt just the way it sounds, letter I and letter O. Since Argo's patron goddess was Hera, Io became a priest of Hera. Hera was the goddess of marriage, women, childbirth, and family. She was the sister wife of Zeus, and let me tell ya, she's a bit cray cray. Zeus definitely had a lust problem and cheated on Hera all the time. However, 
I think the correct answer would be to reestablish the rules of their marriage and not take out her jealous rage on everyone but Zeus. I couldn't imagine being immortal and being married and expected to be with the same lover for a thousand years. I could still love my soulmate and want to be with them. That doesn't mean I shouldn't have some variety. Anyway, back to Io. So, right by the Anacus River, there was a lush meadow and a grove of trees. Io would go about every day and tend to this grove. This grove became so lovely that it attracted the attention of Zeus. Io was very beautiful, and she was labeled a nymph, as her father was the river. So Zeus noticed Io and transformed himself into a shepherdman. Every day, he would come to the grove and spent many hours with Io, talking and walking with her along the river. Io didn't know who Zeus was, and she fell in love with the shepherdman. Hera one day was hanging out on Mount Olympus and she was looking for her husband, but he was back on Earth again. So she decided to see what was going on. So she went down to Earth and entered the grove of Io. Zeus and Io were in the midst of a embrace. Zeus apparently could feel his wife with his spidey sense and panicked and he turned Io into a beautiful white cow and then he turned himself back into his real form. Hera, not being fooled by Zeus's trickery, decided to play along. She was like, oh Zeus honey, I always wanted a beautiful white cow. Thank you so much for this gift. Zeus not knowing what to do, let Hera take Io as the cow. And so Hera led Io away and she mumbled to her, Now that I have you, I'll make sure you'll never have my husband again. <laughs> so Hera knew like this whole time. This is my evil laugh. Hera called over one of her servants named Argus. This is spelt with a U, not an O. And Argus had a hundred eyes to watch over Io day and night. No matter how tired Argus got, he would only close half of his eyes at a time, leaving 50 eyes to watch over Io at any given point. At night, Io was tied to a tree, but had free range during the day. Io was so confused at what happened to her, so she went to go get comfort from Argus, and all that left her lips was a moo. She lifted out her arms for a hug and found that she had hooves. So then she went over to the river where she had spent so many days with Zeus and then she looked at her reflection in the stream. She was so upset to see that she was actually a cow and no one noticed her or recognized her, including her father. She realized she couldn't speak, so with her hoof, she carved the story of what happened to her in the sand. Argus watched this reunion between Io and her father, and then he promptly decided that they shouldn't be together. So he took Io to a different pasture, and Argus went to the top of the hill so he could watch her night and day. Zeus had been trying to figure out a way to save Io without incurring the wrath of his wife. So he enlisted help from Hermes. He ordered Hermes to kill Argus in any means possible. Hermes, disguised as a little shepherd's boy, started to play a pipe. 
and Argus loved the song so much that he invited the disguised Hermes to sit next to him. Hermes spent a long time playing a song and telling this long boring story in this monotone voice about the origin of the pipe reeds. And then finally, Argus closed all 100 of his eyes and then Hermes quickly took out a sword and then cut off Argus's head. Hermes took off back to Mount Olympus to let Zeus know, hey, I cut off that dude's head. However, before Zeus could make it back to Earth and turn Io back to a human, Hera happened to have come by that meadow. And then she looked down and she was like, no, my favorite servant, Argus, what happened? And then she was so upset. And so she ended up taking all 100 of his eyes and then putting them on the tail of her favorite bird, the peacock. Hera still blamed Io for sleeping with her husband, and now the death of her favorite servant. So she sent a large gadfly, or like a horsefly, to sting her night and day, until finally Io was just lashing out in pain. She couldn't get any sleep, she was grumpy. So she began her journey to different lands to try and find a cure for her predicament where she finally landed in Egypt. She was tired and weary from her long travels and she lay by the Nile and begged the gods to relieve her suffering. Finally, Zeus couldn't take it anymore and he confessed everything to Hera and he begged her to lift the curse. He promised he would never see her or speak to her again. Hera softened from her husband's confession, decided to allow her to turn back to her human body. The Egyptians found Io sleeping by the Nile and found her so beautiful and so good that they made her their queen. There, Io ruled for many years, and the people erected a temple for her. They made a statue in her image and called her Isis. Zeus and Io had a son named Epapus. In Egypt, his name is Apis, and is usually depicted as a bull. Epapus married the daughter of Nilus. Her name was Memphis, and they had a daughter named Libya. The land in which she lived was named after her. The most commonly accepted story is that Poseidon became enamored with Libya and raped her. She bore twin sons named Belus and Agner. Belus married a sea nymph, and she bore twin sons named Danis and Egyptus. Danis, being the oldest, became the legendary king of Libya. His brother Egyptus became king of Arabia. Depending on the sources, Danis and Egyptus had two younger brothers, Cepheus and Peneus. Cepheus becomes king of Ethiopia and has a daughter named Andromeda. Andromeda is known for being rescued by Perseus after he killed Medusa. There are so many fun stories that I want to talk about, but I'm trying to stay on track here. I just want to connect some dots for you. Egyptus ruled Arabia and conquered a nearby country ruled by people called Milepodis and called it by his name, Egypt. Egyptus goes on to have 50 sons, and what do you know, his twin brother Danis happens to have 50 daughters. 
Egyptus demands that Danis marry his daughters to his sons. Egyptus must have had quite the army because Danis ended up building the first ship that ever was by the advice of Athena and then fled from Libya where he was king with his 50 daughters back to his great-grandmother Ios of Argo. So Egyptus is mad bro. So he amasses this massive army and then heads off to Argos. Danis really doesn't want to fight his brother nor does he want his country of Argos to go to war because of him and his daughters. So he crafted this plan with his daughters. Danis tells his daughters to go back with Egyptus and marry their cousins, but on their wedding night, Danis tells his daughters to kill their husbands. 49 of the daughters followed through, and subsequently, they buried the heads of their husbands in Lerna. The one who didn't kill her husband was called Hypernestra. Lycanus, Hypernestra's husband, honored her wish to remain a virgin. Danis was angry with his disobedient daughter and then threw her to the Argive courts. Aphrodite, the goddess of love, ended up intervening and saving Hypernestra. Now, according to Greek naming conventions, the daughter of Danis are also called the Danades. Lycanaceus and Hypernestra then began the dynasty of Argive of Argos kings, the Danade dynasty. After the death of his sons, Egyptus escaped Aroe in Greece and then he died there. Apparently, his monument was shown in the Temple of Serapis at Patrae. In some versions, Lycanus later killed Danis as revenge for the death of his brothers. In ancient Greek, it is believed that killing your family member incurs miasma. A miasma is like a blood debt to the gods. The more miasma you have, the more you need to become purified before death, lest you incur eternal punishment. In later accounts, the Danades were punished in Tartarus by being forced to carry water in a jug to fill a bath without a bottom or with a leak and thereby wash off their sins. But the bath was never filled because the water was always leaking out. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. Your support means everything to me. If you want to help make this podcast grow, please subscribe and tell just one other person about this podcast today. We are each our own hero in this story we call life. That means one person has the power to change everything. Who is the one person you tell today? hero. Let's help keep Atlantis alive, or at least reimagined. A new episode will be released every Thursday at 9 p.m. See you then. Wait, are you still here? Thank you. It's appreciated. Here's a clip for next week's episode. Theseus was a legendary king of Athens who slew the Minotaur at Crete. Theseus was king at least one generation before the Trojan War. Theseus was known for liberating the Athenian people by slaying the Minotaur. The people of Crete, during the presumptive time of King Minos, are called by modern-day archaeologists the Minoans. The Bronze Age is marked for the prolific use of bronze, a metal alloy composed of copper and tin. 
copper is relatively common, but tin ended up being a scarcity. If anyone wants to know why we no longer have tin foil and have moved to aluminum, now you know why. <laughs>